Well, friends, good morning. Uh, my name is Rowan, one of the pastors here, and that was a clip, actually the trailer of the Chicago 7. It's on Netflix. Uh, don't go there now and watch it. Um, but it, it, it's a fantastic look into the events that happened in 1968, 1969, uh, around seven or eight people that, that really were involved in protests against uh, what the government were doing in the US, sending troops into Vietnam and when they pulled troops out. And it's a real look into the courtroom scene of, of these people being put on trial. Uh, and while there's kind of some bias in the movie, it's worth a watch. I'd encourage you to check it out. Um, I think you see that the, the, the script within the Netflix movie is actually based on the transcripts from the trial. So what went on, the actual words said, are other words said in this courtroom. And in the courtroom, you see throughout the movie a trial that really wasn't a trial at all. It was a mockery of a trial. Um, in fact, uh, the seven people that were there, they all spent time in prison, but after that, their sentences were all overturned by the U.S. Court of Appeals. They were all removed from prison. You see in the movie the prejudice of the judge. He, he stacks the jury. He removes people from the jury because they're, they're kind of with the defendants. We see illegal tapping of phones from FBI. Just in so many ways, there's a picture of human history and the way that the courtroom can be perversed. Once we've just read that long section of the historical life of Jesus... We get taken back to a first century trial, for for a trial where Jesus is in the dock. We're the audience in this courtroom, and there's a questionable judge. And Mark's recorded this kind of particular sequence of events for us because he wants the whole world to watch this trial. Uh, In the Chicago 7, the, the, the cry was the whole world's watching. Well, the Bible holds out to us an event that's even more important to understand because it's phenomenally profound for the way that we think about the identity of Jesus. For the next two chapters we'll see here, um, it's really like the temple has been turned into a courtroom. It's like this scene from the the trial of Chicago 7, except this time, the guy who's on trial, Jesus, he hasn't done anything wrong. The judge in this instance is what's called the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin were kind of the Jewish elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. It was this kind of buffer organization between Rome, who were running the shop, and then the Jewish leaders in the church. It comprised of 71 different members, and they had almost complete freedom in religious matters. They called the shots in Israel in the religious realm. And so with Jesus on the dock, you and I in the audience, the whole world watching, Israel's most authoritative figures sitting as the judge, we get four questions, four traps that come forward to try and prove Jesus is a fraud, a fake, and a liar. But the trial comes with a twist that at the end you'll see has incredible implications for you and me sitting here today over 2,000 years later. And the reason we've done such a large section today is to show you the whole thing and the way Mark is outlining it so you can understand the temptation and tests that they put, the traps they put Jesus under. So let's have a quick look at the four traps that Jesus uh, is put to in the courtroom. Number one, they come to Jesus and ask, whose authority? Whose authority? Look at verse 27 of Mark 11. They came again to Jerusalem. And as Jesus was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came and asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? Now, if you just remember, Jesus has walked in, well, ridden on a donkey into Jerusalem. He started turning over the tables. He's angry you've turned the house of God into a den of robbers. He cleans out the temple. That could be what they're talking about. By what authority do you do these things? But I doubt that's their only concern. Since the very beginning, Jesus has been saying things that have been challenging the religious authorities the whole way through. 
2 verse 5, I can forgive sins. Ah, oh, that really ruffled their feathers because God alone can forgive sins. Who is he claiming to be? He heals the sick. He raises the dead. He calms the storm. He hangs out with the unclean, the, the, the social outcasts. He redefines the Sabbath. He removes the oral laws that were set up in chapter 7, that idea of Corbin and the way they were using it. He says of the temple, you flatten it, I'll raise it in three days. And now he's before the most powerful authority in the Sanhedrin. Now, if you're in authority, if you've got a position of high standing and some guy comes along and tells you your current system's wrong, the system that gives you power and authority, the system you're happy with beforehand, the system that's got you in the position that you're in, you're not going to like what they've got to say. He's challenging their authority to say there is a greater authority than them. It's as if they walk up to the dock and they scream to Jesus, who do you think you are? Test number two. Chapter 12, verse 13, Jesus says this. They sent some Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to trap him in his words, Mark tells us. When they came, they said, Teacher, we know you are truthful and don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality, but teach in the way of God truthfully. Because <laughs> they don't really mean that, right? Uh, Mark tells us they're trying to trap him. Is it lawful, was their question, to pay taxes to Caesar or not? I mean, should we pay or shouldn't we? Now, the Pharisees and the Herodians here, they were the extreme opposites. You'd never get them in the room together. They hated each other. The only thing they hated more than each other was Jesus. And so here they come trying to trap him, trying to double team to show Jesus out to be a liar or to living for someone else. Uh, they use flattery at the start. And another, always watch out for flattery. Oh, Jesus, what a great teacher you are. I love your teaching. You're so good. And then in comes the knife. After buttering him up, they lay the trap. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, if Jesus answers, yes, we should pay taxes to Caesar, all the Pharisees, all the religious leaders will, who see that the church and the state are one and they don't want to recognize Caesar's rule over them. So they think that you know, they should be in control, not, not Caesar, not all these Romans in control. They would say that Jesus is claiming that God was not the ruler of the nation Israel. And so they would say, how dare you pay taxes to this, this Roman person? And take him off and say, you can't be someone who is of God because God says church and state in the Old Testament should be together. But if he answers no, the Herodians who are kind of linked in with Rome, they're kind of in bed with Rome as Rome's representative, um, they would see that Jesus is not obeying the law. You know, Caesar is our governor. You should be obeying the law. If you're not paying taxes to Caesar, we'll take you off and kill you. So at this moment... Whatever way he answers, he's damned if he does, he's damned if he doesn't. He's in the hot seat. And the question we've got to ask is, what will Jesus do as he's being put to test? Test number three. Whose wife? Whose wife? This test comes from the Sadducees. And it really is a question that tries um, to claim the idea that afterlife is impossible. There's no such thing as life after death. Jesus had spoken earlier that he would be raised from the dead. Three times in Mark's Gospel, uh, 8.31, 9.31, and 10.34. Great little verses to remember. That he must be killed and after three days rise again. He must be killed and be risen again. They'll mock him and spit on him in 10.34 and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Jesus couldn't have been more clear. He's claiming that he would rise from the dead. He would die and rise again. But the Sadducees, they didn't believe in life after death. Either upstairs or downstairs. You live, you die, that's it. They're what we call annihilationists. We eat, we drink, and then tomorrow there's nothing. And so as they come along here, we see that they're trying to prove Jesus is wrong with this idea of the afterlife. 
And so they come up with arguments that try to disprove life after death. Now, the Sadducees, they know Jesus believes in the Old Testament. They only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. That was their strong suit. And so they say Moses had this law, you see, that if a man is married to a woman and her husband dies and they're left no children, then the husband's brother should marry the wife. Uh, the law was there to, to care for women. Uh, if she had no husband and no children, she had no one to support her in her old age. There was no social security, no government support in this point. So the law was set to, to care for her and, and to see her name continue. It was a loving law. So the Sadducees, they come along and go, okay, so imagine a situation where, as the Old Testament says, the husband dies. And then the husband's brother marries the widow. And then imagine that a brother dies. And so the other brother, there's more brothers, she marries the widow, then he dies, and this keeps going on. Now, at one point, you've got to stop and go, what, what is she cooking? Like, this is, this is not good. Like, whatever's going on here is, is not great. Everyone keeps dying. But then they say, okay, so at the resurrection, if it really exists, whose wife will she be? They're obviously saying, look, if, if, this is, if this is the law is set there, it means that there must be nothing else because you can't be married to multiple people in the afterlife. Now, there's a really helpful side note to recognize here. This argument, even though it's from the Sadducees and you wouldn't want to line up with everything they say, it can only work if polygamy, being married to multiple people at once, is wrong. Now, you won't find anywhere in the Scriptures that say outright that polygamy is wrong, although time after time, every time it happens, we keep seeing negative consequences. Um, but here you see it. The argument can only happen if polygamy is wrong. In heaven, they'd only be married to one person, right? In the afterlife, you can only be married to one person at once. That's the assumption behind it all. It's an insight into the way that the, the first century and Jewish world viewed marriage. One husband, one wife. That was the ideal and that was the goal. The Sadducees are trying to trap Jesus by saying, see, you can't tell me which one will be her husband. Therefore, the only conclusion is there's no afterlife because God's law would be right. So again, Jesus is in the hot seat. Either he denies the resurrection or he denies the word of God about how brothers should act. Then we get to the fourth trap. And this is probably the most heartfelt question. There's a sense where you go, is this a trap or not? It's a scribe who knows the Old Testament law inside and out. And he comes to Jesus asking, which commandment of the Old Testament supersedes them all? Which, which commandment summarizes everything? Now, the scribe knows that there are so many commandments in the Old Testament. About 613, if you want to count them. 365 things you can't do, 248 that you can do. Right? That, that's a lot to remember about what I can do, what I can't do, how this works. Uh, there's a story about a Jewish rabbi who was a famous teacher, and someone came to him and said, Rabbi, Rabbi, if you can summarize for me the whole Old Testament law while I stand on one foot, I'll become a Jew. The whole point was people knew how complex the Old Testament law was. And so this scribe has come to test Jesus. Show me your wisdom. Show me how you can summarize the whole Old Testament. Tell me what, what the heart of the law is. Which commandment supersedes them all? How can he summarize it all without compromising? It really is another test, although probably the most heartfelt one. In each of these tests, Jesus is put on trial. Each person comes, each group trying to trap him. That's why Jesus asks in verse 15, why are you testing me? More literally, why are you tempting me? But when we hear the answers Jesus gives in each of these instances, it becomes very clear that he is not the one who is on trial. 
Each and every time, Jesus flips the whole test, the whole trial on its head. It's like he hops out of the dock and he walks around to the judge's bench himself. He puts them in the dock, right in the hot seat and says, well, what does he say? Well, let's come and have a look at the answers to these four questions and see how Jesus flips them around. To the question of whose authority do you do these things? They wanted to know whose authority it was that he could do all the things that had gone on. Jesus answers with a classic Zoolander line. Now, just show of hands, who's seen the movie Zoolander? Okay, that's better. I don't think I'm going to go well at uni church tonight. But here's a picture of Zoolander. Classic question. Uh, let me answer your question with another question. That's what he says. Uh, and so that's the moment Jesus does to them. Let me answer your question with another question. He asks them about John the Baptist. Chapter 11, verse 30. Was John's baptism from heaven or of human origin? Now, if you go back to chapter 2 of Mark, we see something amazing happened. As John was baptizing people in the Jordan River, Jesus came and was baptized by John. And at that moment, Mark tells us that heaven opened and a voice from heaven was heard by all as Jesus was being baptized that said, This is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Jesus points back to the authority of John and says, If you want to know where my authority comes from, you've got to ask what happened in John's baptism. Where was his authority coming from? He traps them in their own thinking because if they say that John's authority was from human origin, then they're saying that everyone who's following John at the moment, which is a big following, there are lots of people going out, and this guy was a leader before he died by Herod. Um, and so people were viewing him as a rock star. And so they saw him as a prophet, and that would cause a massive outrage to say, John, you're saying John's authority was not from heaven? But if they say John's authority was from God, then... Well, at his baptism, as they heard that voice, well, they can't say that because he said that this is God, God, Jesus is God's son. They're trapped in their own logic. They can't get out of it. And so they reply like a couple of teenagers when they've been caught outside the principal's office. You know the time outside the principal's office? What, what happened? What's the answer to my question? And when you know they've done the thing that's wrong and they go, oh, we, we don't know. We don't know what happened. <laughs> but they did know. They just wouldn't speak. Because if they spoke, the implications would be the need to trust that Jesus comes with the authority of God. They're silenced. They're, they're, they're cornered. They're snookered. At this point, we need to stand back and think through Jesus' authority. Because if he is the Son of God, God the Son, that means he has authority over every area of life, not just for them, but for all of us. And, and it's worth asking, ask the question today, are there areas of Jesus' authority that you're refusing to recognize? Are there claims about his character or word that you know to be true, but you just would rather plead ignorance on? Are there areas of your life that you think you know better than the one who made you? You know what they are. They'll start coming up. Areas you want to disagree with God's word. Are you so convinced that you see the world rightly in those areas, maybe in every area, that you're going to reject the plain and clear facts laid out in front of you about who Jesus is and the authority that he comes with. If there's a sense where God's Spirit is prompting you this morning to think through those areas, there's areas that come to mind, I want to encourage you to go to him and thank him for his forgiveness that has been offered and ask God to help you to put Jesus first, to let his authority rule your life, to trust the one who made you. But Jesus doesn't stop there. They wouldn't answer his question. So Jesus turns to them and says something that has pretty scary implications for you and me as well. 
They're refusing to acknowledge where his authority is from. So Jesus says in verse 33, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Here's the point for us. If you're unwilling to investigate Jesus, to lay yourself open to the implications of who he is, then Jesus is unwilling to reveal himself to you. Do you remember when Jesus said a little earlier as we went through the parables, he who has ears to hear, let him hear? He's saying the same thing again. Come and listen, come and look, come and see who I am. Look at what has gone on and trust me and I'll reveal more of myself to you. But if you don't come and look, if you don't recognize my authority, then I will not reveal myself to you. There's judgment here. No Jesus, no salvation. Then we get to this next parable of the tenants that Jesus tells. You're like, wow, this is another story about this owner. And, and it's really a horrific story. The idea that the owner has a vineyard and it rents it out to some tenants who come along, that they, they want to grow grapes, and so he makes a commercial agreement with them. Everything's going fine and dandy until it comes time to pay the rent. They're like, we don't want to pay the rent. So the, the, the owner sends you know, a servant along. They beat up the servant. He goes, oh, maybe he was a bit harsh. Sends another one and another one and another one. In the end, they kill the servants. You're like, who are these guys? Strutting around on a vineyard as if they know the place, as if they own the place. They're just renting off the real owner and they think they can kill all these people coming through. So the landowner then says, all right, I'm going to send my son. They'll recognize the authority of my son. As Jesus tells them this parable, you're thinking, what's he saying here? So the son gets sent in and they go, great, we'll kill the air, then it's ours for good. We can rule the world. Jesus brings up this parable to them to help them recognize what the owner, God, the creator of the universe is doing. Out of great compassion, God has been sending messenger after messenger after messenger to God's people to recognize how to trust him, to serve him finally. He sends his son. Jesus is saying to them, you want to know by what authority I come? I come with the Father's authority. I am God the Son. You're seeing face to face with the one who was there in the beginning, that through whom and by whom and for whom all things were made, whether things in heaven or on earth, visible, invisible, rulers, powers, dominions, or authorities. That's what Paul says, were made through Jesus, by Jesus, and for Jesus. You should have seen it at my baptism, he said. You should have recognized it then. The authority by which I do these things is my Father's authority. I come with the full authority of God himself. That makes us ask, what will your response to the Son be? See, so often I reckon we can react like tenants. We can pretend that we own the world that we're in. The land we have, the possessions that we have, all come from us. We've worked for them, they're ours. And we kind of say to God, get lost, I don't, I don't really need you. Or we think that a little, maybe not as clearly as that. We think if we say that, look, Jesus was just a nice guy. Jesus was just a good teacher, a moral leader, maybe even a prophet. If we push him off to that sense, we can do whatever we want. We become the owner of our pad, the vineyard we own, the land we have. If I wipe God out of the equation, I can do whatever I want. Jesus is saying, this is the mindset of these people. They want to get rid of God and live lives their own way. And again, by His Spirit, God is prompting each one of us to think through, is that you today? Is there a sense where you're trying to push God away and say, I don't need to live, I just want to, I don't need to live under you, I just want to live my own way? Do you do that? Are there ways in your life, maybe even small ones, where you go, look, 
I know this is what God wants me to do, but I'm not going to do it. Not today, not here. Maybe you're a Christian here today. Maybe you like the sound of much of what Jesus says, but there are a few areas that you're like, oh, maybe I would change that. Do not reject the Son. He is God to us. He made us. He's in control of everything. Jesus' answer to trap number two then comes. And whose money is this? Do I give to Caesar or not? Now, when it comes to the question of whose money is it, Jesus does exactly the same thing in the courtroom. He sees their hearts. He knows that they don't want answers. They just want to test him with a coin. So he answers them in 12.16. Whose image and inscription is this? Caesar's, they replied. I bet you it was like, Caesar's. And Jesus told them, then give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God. And they were utterly amazed at him. See, the coin bared Caesar's image, his portrait. His face was on it and it belonged to him. It was Caesar's coin. But the sting in the tail for the kind of test that Jesus has here is the way he comes back. I mean, whose image is it? Well, of course, it's, it's Caesar's image, right? It's a picture of Caesar who was made in the image of God. See, humanity represents, we, we image the God who made us. That's what happens at the beginning as God created male and female. He made us in his image. All mankind is made in the image of God. So Jesus says, well, whose image is on the coin? Is it Caesar's? Or is it actually an image of God? We are to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. For Caesar created a system they lived in that had taxes and that, that looked after a community that was there, so they should pay taxes to Caesar. But don't forget who made Caesar. God. Caesar is in God's image. And that's why we've got to remember what Jesus is saying here. God gave us everything. The world is his. There's nothing that we have that God didn't give us. In Psalm 24, it says this, The earth... And everything in it, the world and its inhabitants, belong to the Lord. That's such a sobering thought. How often I get frustrated when people kind of take more from me than I think they ought to. I'm like, no, that's not fair. It's mine. I work for that. Or I think about, that was my thing. Or I bought this and this is mine. And I keep thinking about my own identity of holding these things and how important they are. And I forget I'm jealous for me rather than for God because everything is His. The world is His. Everything in it. All of the inhabitants belong to him. We are to pay our taxes, for we live under the authority that God has set up. He's set up every authority on earth. And sure, we can take means to be able to change the way those authorities work. Uh, we can rebel and suffer the consequences if they cause us to sin. But Jesus is saying we worship the one whose image is ultimately there, and that is God's. We pay taxes, but we live for God. The third question the, the question of the resurrection and whose wife she will be. Well, look at verse 24 and hear Jesus' answer and the way he flips the courtroom again. Jesus spoke to them. Isn't, the reason, sorry, isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. Now, that's like the equivalent of everyone would be like, ooh, right at that moment. Because these, these guys, they're supposed to know their Bible. They're Sadducees. They hold the first five books as the important thing. Everyone would have been like, oh, these guys, like, burn. That would have been what everyone's thinking. And then Jesus quotes the scriptures back to them. They're trying to use their strong suit, the law of Moses. I will show you the resurrection can't happen. I mean, whose wife would she be? See, there is no life after death. And Jesus quotes back in verse 26 of chapter 12. 
As for the dead being raised, haven't you read the book of Moses? Like you're supposed to have, Sadducees. Um, In the passage about the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Now, it's an odd argument. I don't necessarily think we'd use this very often. But what he's pointing here is to really get into the grammar of what is said. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He uses the present tense. And at that point, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when Moses is speaking, are all dead. So how can Moses say that this, or how can God say that I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He could say, I was while they were alive. But if they're dead now, then he can't be the present God of those people because they're dead. There's nothing after death. So Jesus here used the argument that says, because God goes, I am presently the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they must be in some sense still alive. Yes, they've died, but the resurrection will happen. He uses grammar to win the day. Now, sometimes people come along and go, ah, you know, you're too nitty-gritty in the Bible. You're too into the grammar and working out what it's saying. I'm like, hey, Jesus did it. Like, he's going, this matters. The way God's word has come across to us matters. We can't go, ah, it doesn't really matter. We shouldn't get all grammatical and think through the way it happens. Jesus uses this as an argument. Present tense, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, you're mistaken. You're wrong. And I thought through for us, here Jesus goes to their strong suit, their knowledge of the Old Testament to win them across. It's a great way to do it. How would we do that in society around us? What is our strong suit as a society? What would we say we know really, really well? I think our strong suit, we would say, as a society is science. You know, whenever you talk about the resurrection or life after death, people go, but science. And I go, yep, let's talk about science. Research. We must research these things. I haven't seen 100 resurrections, so it probably can't happen. When it comes to historical events like the resurrection... We can't really use a scientific approach that tests a hypothesis on something that can be repeated. We need to research it in the way that all historical events are researched, like a courtroom where you hear eyewitness testimony. And so we need to come and look at history and see that history holds out uh, the research of history that so many sources, Christian and non-Christian, were reporting to lots of people that Jesus really did rise from the dead. The reality is that the empty tomb is historically verifiable. That Jesus rose from the dead lines up with the history we have. Science and our kind of models of research and the way we use history today points us to the fact there's no better explanation for the spread of Christianity, for the empty tomb, for all the things that went on in the first century than he actually rose. There might be another explanation, we just don't have it. As we think through our strong suits, we've got to be careful we don't push aside the facts of the resurrection. We need to ask ourselves, how does the resurrection of Jesus, the reality of life after death, the fact that we'll need to face judgment for the way that we've all lived, how does that affect the way you think, the way you live? Does that shape what you think about as you head off to work, as you head off to school or university or amongst your family? Do you think through there is life after death? This life is not all there is. There is a judgment we need to face. Does that shape the way you think? How could it shape the way you think more? What would it change about the way you live? See, getting the afterlife wrong means you never get this life right. Getting the afterlife wrong means you never get this life right. Because you won't recognize who Jesus is and you won't recognize he is the king and you won't live in response 
to him. Now we get to the the final test, the final trap. Which commandment is the most important of all? And you're kind of thinking, how's it going to happen this time? What's he going to do? How's he going to flip it? And we get this man who is the closest of them all, wanting to know the commandment that summarizes them all. And Jesus answers something in the way he answers this question that would have been really well known to all of the Jews that were there. He answers it with the words of the Shema. Now, Shema is just the Hebrew word for hear or listen. And it starts that, that sentence, um, listen, O Israel, it's that Shema. Uh, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And Jews would have been saying this to one another. It's one of the key phrases they kept saying from Deuteronomy. Um, and what it really is saying, we need to respond to the God who speaks. There is one God, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We need to respond to him because he is God. It's to come to the God and say, I'm going to live for you. I'm going to serve him with, you, with my all. Have a look at verse 30. Jesus summarizes the greatest commandment in this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. That's how Jesus summarizes the whole Old Testament law. He brings them together. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love neighbor. The scribe here, he actually agrees with Jesus. He literally says Jesus is right. He is righteous. It is an amazing answer. But then listen to Jesus' response in verse 34. Look carefully. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are in the kingdom of God. Do you see that? No, he didn't say you're in the kingdom of God. That's what I'd expect him to say because he's like, oh, this is great. I agree with what you're saying, Jesus. But he doesn't. He doesn't go, great, you've got it all. You're in. You've got it sorted. He says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. There's a sense there that perplexes me a little. Why isn't the scribe in? He's got it right. What has he not yet understood? Now, he might know the Old Testament scriptures. But the thing is, he doesn't know the word of God. He doesn't know who it is he is standing in front of. He doesn't recognize that the one looking him in the eyeballs is the one who flung stars into space. If we're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind and all your strength, then we need to love Jesus as the creator and sustainer of all. He's going, you might understand what that is, but you've not understood who I am. And when he says you are near to the kingdom, he's saying, you've kind of got this right about the way we respond to God, but you've not yet recognized that I am God. He's near to the kingdom because he's near to the king. He's looking him in the face. Just like that rich young ruler we looked at on Good Friday. No one can fulfill that law to love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind and all our strength. Not not perfectly. None of us can do that. We keep falling short of that. No one is good enough for God. And so if this guy is here claiming to love God and to say, yep, I've got that and I'm doing that, he's missed the point. He's missed God the Son looking him in the face. And if we come along today and claim to love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength, yet don't love our brother, if we think that we're okay with God because of our actions, then we're deceiving ourselves. We need to see here that if we love God, we will love our brother. So much of the world around us says we should love others. We need to love others and that loving others is what we're about. I want you to recognize you can love others but not love God. You can, you can love others in the way that you think is right or society might recognize, but not have any relationship with God. But you, you can't love God and not love others. That's what flows from here. Jesus is saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. 
and therefore love your neighbor as yourself. How have you gone in that? I know I failed. I've not loved my family well enough. I've not loved you well enough. My friends, my... It's a great reminder that if we're serious about putting Jesus first, we need to be serious about loving others as well. Loving others in our church family. Loving others in our families. Even those that are hard to deal with. If you're refusing to reconcile with someone, if you're taking the high road, thinking yourself above them, you know, they've done that to me, I don't need to speak to them. If you're not taking someone at their word, if you're not acting in a way that's appropriate for a relationship that you have with someone, either between a husband and wife or boyfriend and girlfriend, brother and sister, friend, flatmate, colleague, classmate, if there are issues in your relationships, then you're not loving God as you ought. If those aren't reconciled, or at least be attempted to reconcile, put forward reconciliation. To love God is to love others. But we need to understand here that in order to love others, we need to come and love God the Son, the one who did what we can't do perfectly, the one who laid down his life for us, the one who died in our place. After these questions come, this man is close to the kingdom, but he's not in because he can't perform the task. He's not yet understood fully who Jesus is. But they've recognized one thing, that after trying to question Jesus, they all give up. They can't. Look at verse 34. No one dared to question him any longer. Now, it wasn't because they ran out of questions. Oh, I've got nothing else to say. What do we do now? I've got no more questions. It wasn't that. It's because they freaked out. They don't want to be shown up. No one dared to ask any more questions because they recognized there was something about this man, something so other, so different, so amazing, that every single time he flipped to show, you can't question him, he will question you. At every account, what we see is there's really only one judge. It's the last point today. Just one judge. Every time Jesus has been accused, we see him flip the account, the, the trial on its head. It's as if the hunted has become the hunter. He's saying, who do you think you are questioning me? The vineyard is mine. I come with the Father's authority. I'm in control of it all. Everything is mine. The coin, the, 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 the authorities that are in place. Of course there's life after death. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus would say in John. Do you not see who I am? Throughout the whole episode, Jesus is saying, you don't question me. You don't come. You can try. But you recognize that I am the one who is in control. I'm on the judge's bench and you are in the dock. And that's what Mark's trying to show us through this big, long section here. Today, 2,000 years later, we've been brought into that courtroom. We've been placed on the dock. And we've been found guilty by the judge who is Jesus. We don't treat God as we ought. We don't love others as we ought. I don't know how many times I've heard people come and say, look, I believe in Jesus. If only he came to me today. If only he said this. If only he did this. If only he gave me a sign. And Jesus says, you don't question me. I came and lived and died and rose again. Mark's recorded this for us. The whole world is watching the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done. The question is, how will you respond to the judge who's looking us in the eyes this morning? We're going to have to stand before that one, Jesus, holy and righteous judge. On the day he comes back, on the day the resurrection happens, we'll need to give an account for how we've acted and what we've said and done. And the great mistake of society is we think 
God will be answerable to us. And we'll say on that day when we finally meet God, why did you do this? Why did you do that? Friends, no, no, no. He will look at us and go, who do you think you are? He is not answerable to us. We are answerable to him. You've got to get your courtroom furniture right. We're in the dock. We are not the judge. Jesus is the judge. And as his hammer comes down on that judgment day, the verdict for every single one of us will be this, guilty. For turning our backs on God. But then the most amazing thing happens for those who trusted in Jesus. Something so unlike that Julius Hoffman judge from the Chicago 7 in 1969 and 70. That judge was, was corrupt, was wrong, did all sorts of wrong things. This judge, Jesus, brings down the hammer, guilty, and then steps aside and dies in our place. He takes the penalty that we deserve on himself. Jesus' death as the, as the true judge, as the just judge, and the one who fully takes the penalty that we deserve while we're shaking our fists at him. What an amazing person Jesus is. It, to me, it's, it's completely astonishing that the, the one who created every single one of us, the one who knitted you and I together, the one who made this world with a word, loves us so much that despite our rejection time and time again, would remain just and also give himself for the penalty for what we've done. He's an amazing God. That, that he would bear the punishment on himself. Friends, that's a judge I want to trust. That's the judge I want to be before. The one who sees all, knows all, is still just, but takes the penalty for me. Because even though I know that I'm guilty, I know he's paid the price for me. Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers, writes, Christ died for our sin, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. And he died to his end day, proclaiming that message, because he was captivated by this Jesus. The question for us today is, are you captivated by Jesus? Is he your king? Do you trust in his death in our place? or in your own view of the world that is around us. For serving Jesus is the best way to live. Let's pray. Father God, we confess today that so often we come to Jesus and want him to answer our questions. We want you to answer our questions. We demand answers when we, we have no right to do that at all. We recognize that we have not treated you as we ought. We have not loved you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. <laughs> Father, please forgive us for the way that we have treated you and those that you've put us on this earth with. Help us to recognize Jesus as he really is. We'd see him as the king of all, the one who will judge the living and the dead. Father, open our hearts to show us the areas that we are taking out of bounds from you. The points we want to push Jesus aside from being on the throne of our life in, show us those by your spirit, we ask. Help us to talk today about them with one another. And help us, Lord, to put Jesus as king over our whole lives, whether that's for the first time stepping in and saying, yes, I want to serve you. Or it's coming back to you and saying, help me to keep Jesus at the center. Or it's saying, please keep my eyes fixed on Jesus that I might not wander away. Lord, you know where we're at. And we ask that by your spirit and through your word, you would fix our eyes and captivate us on the amazing nature of Jesus as the just judge who dies for us. Amen. 
You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.